This is the True North Collective podcast, a gathering of unsugarcoated conversations on authenticity, created by the real-life documentation of everyday humans fearlessly finding their true north. Welcome to season four of the podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel. I got my septum pierced yesterday and have to dump my nose in salt water twice a day for the next three months. I recently acquired overalls and haven't taken them off for three days. And I have a really big urge to go fishing. Hi, I'm Amy. I love to sing. I'm an introvert, though people don't realize it. And I have three amazing adult children. Hi, I'm Janelle. I love cookie dough. I played the flute growing up, but my parents called it my javelin because I throw it. And the cheetah girls were my jam in the early 2000s. And we are your hosts of the True North Collective podcast. How old are you when you were throwing your javelin? Ooh, I think like fifth or sixth grade. So what, between 10 and 12? I hated that thing. Hated it. I'd play it. It was stupid. And then I'd get mad. But I always had to like throw it on the bed because I knew it was really expensive and I couldn't break uh, it. I was so like, like, wow, I played the clarinet and I cannot imagine throwing that thing. I would have been like totally punished and then also just like like you're oh, 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 you know like trying to throw it I would have I was probably so like bad. half the throw I mean the flute's pretty like you know it's like metal there's not yeah. much that can break on it but I was definitely it always had to land on the bed okay that makes me feel better I was kind of getting stressed it's like sweating I also played the flute in fifth grade Ooh, did you throw it maybe a time or two see I think that's the thing is, I, is it the mouth part that's hard it's all of it. There's a whole lot of finger action too, you know? Yeah. I actually um, switched to the saxophone. I felt like I had mastered the flute that year and my jazz underneath was calling. So mm. I switched to saxophone, same fingers, same keys. And I really upset my classmates when I came in in the fall and took first chair. Ooh. So you are really musical. I am. I what have other been blessed. What other instruments do you play? Um, I played the guitar when I was young, but I came from an extremely musical family. Um, my dad, who is 88, had four sisters in the war times back during World War I that literally should have gone on the road with four-part harmony, um, but their dad would not allow them to leave. They were on the radio. So every holiday, all we did was sing. I have a, I had a cousin that was a professional pianist, was just passed away in his 60s. And he would bring his keyboard and we would sing every holiday. Yeah. I love so an old soul because I know all the oldies. I what love a cool that. experience. I have I'm sorry some... for your loss. Yeah. Thank you. He was yeah. an amazing pianist. Yeah, he did Broadway here in Minneapolis. He oh. was amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was so cool. Yeah, so that. he'll be missed. Yeah. What a fun, like, I don't, what a fun memory. I don't know. We're, we're not the most musically inclined family, but my mom does sing. Like Janelle talks about her German side and they sing German songs. My mom, when her sisters all get together, they do similar, um, but it's, it's not, it's not pretty. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> that's okay. It comes and 
but I can't, oh, that must be so fun. And to have people be able to join in and feel like a part of it and add to it, that must be really cool. Yeah, and it's a large family. I'm the youngest of, I think about, um, I think there's 30 of us cousins. And um, yeah, so we all, almost all of us were blessed with really nice voices. Um, My mom's family, I am the third youngest of 53 grandchildren. And then my children are, the great grandchildren are over 140, I believe now. Holy moly. I know, I thought I had a big family because I'm like one of, I think 33 first cousins on my mom's side. And then I think I have like, 35 second cousins but I think you might be the only person I know that has beat me in this (laughs) those that know Minnesota it's Stearns County Minnesota and Stearns County is known for really wholesome church growing going towns um very German and so you know there was no birth control back then they just kept having babies Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's my, my mom's parents were very like Catholic. So that is also why I think they had so many children and they ran a small grocery store. And I think they just wanted people to work at the store too. Like very old traditional, why people had children, like they had a farm or they needed to feed themselves. I feel like they're very much in that mindset of, we need two more employees who the family's gonna step up. (laughs) Basically. And exactly, Catholic families through and through. And um, yeah, it was really amazing to have such a huge extended family. And I just thought everyone had that. So it was, it was blessed. Yeah, that's awesome. Rachel, I also had to add, I don't think I told you this. So I've been seeing you wear your overalls the past three days. <laughs> Notice that. And did you know that last weekend I thrifted a pair of overalls for $5 and I now also owed my first pair of overalls? Oh, they're not my first pair, but okay. welcome to the club. It is the best club that ever existed. And yeah, my mom gave me these ones. Um, and I was just like, I had been wanting them because I always have had overalls. I've had like all different kinds over the years. And I have a jumper right now that I also will wear for like a week straight. And I was like, oh, I want some denim. And then my mom was like, she's been going through all her stuff. And she's like, do you want these? And I was like, yep. (laughs) So are they a hand-me-down? These ones, I think she actually had the ones that I was like, can I have those ones? Um, But the other ones that she had would have been true true hand-me-downs. but they were the overalls that she got from like, I don't know if they were her, her dad's or something. And she used to use them to wash their um, dog who has passed away suddenly. And so they're her Maggie overalls. And she's like, I can't give you those. So she gave me these other ones that she had gotten as like, like a random replacement that she never wore and they didn't really fit her. <clears throat> so they haven't really ever been worn, but most of the stuff that I have are, um, are reused things. I love overalls. In fact, you are all probably too young to realize that they were very much in style about 15, 16 years ago. I so 
You I do look, I'm a lot older than I look. Yeah. <laughs> I think of all the clothes that I've given away over the years and I'm thinking, darn every, you know, even now what's up with the bell bottoms coming back and, and the, the mom, mom, mom jean fit. I'm, I'm a mom. I like the mom jean look. Janelle, you're, I, I went through the second revival of bell bottoms in the 90s. So I'm kind of like, eh, I don't need that. But the mom jeans, I'm like, I'm here for that. Oh. I'm here for all of it. As long as low, like just keep the pants high waisted. That's all I care. Like none of these low rider things, none of this early 2000s that no one looked good in and everyone's butt crack was out. Like I just want pants that come to my boobs. <laughs> just wait, Janelle, it's going to come back and you and I are both going to just scowl at people because I also hate it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I will I'm refuse. Not do it like yeah. I will end up being at that point I don't know how old I'll be when it comes back but old enough that people be like you're missing the trend I'm like I don't care my butt crack is safely tucked in my high-rise pants and the top of your jeans don't look like a postage stamp that they're so small that they're barely covering I mean yeah that was (laughs) and tight as can be no I can't and then I realized that they're jeggings so they're comfortable but they look like how can you breathe all my pants are just huge now and like I have a pair that are jeggings and they're all stretched out and I know I should get rid of them but then I put them on and I could do yoga in those suckers even though they're jeans and I'm just like don't care that they're basically I feel like I'm going to the style where like my pants I'm like saying butt cracks out but now my pants are falling down because they're just too big so my butt cracks out not because they're too tight but because now they're too big on me but so I guess I have that problem but I love it and I refuse I'm not going to give them up. I decided. <laughs> get some suspenders. I got some suspenders. <laughs> My dad was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, Nothing. suspenders are awesome. I'm totally <laughs> Are they Dude. rainbow suspenders? I you? have those with red hands. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I have a fun story about rainbow suspenders if you want to hear it. So. I, when I first got done with high school, I was an x-ray technologist. So I worked at Abbott Northwestern Hospital as a student. And every Tuesday and Thursday, we would have transplant day. So all the transplants, heart or lung would come in and we'd line them up and we'd do all their chest x-rays. And as a newbie, I could handle that. You know, that's 18 years old. I've learned how to do a chest x-ray. I've got, you know, great people skills. I can do this. So this cute gentleman who was quite round for his height um, was my patient. And what you're supposed to do is when, you know, you have to have a guy take his suspenders off because of the metal on them. And I missed one instruction where you're supposed to pull the back of their pants and put a calipers so it holds their pants up. Well, I missed that step. So I took the picture, came back around and his pants were on the floor. And he was so sweet about it, but let's fast forward 15 months and I get introduced to my future husband and I recognize his last name of Walls because these transplant patients have film jackets that are so full, they weigh a ton when you have to carry them. 
And I worked in the film room, so I kept seeing the name Walls, and he was on like his fifth x-ray jacket. And when I met Nick and he said his name was Walls, I thought, I know that name. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh, your dad, I x-rayed. And then my eyes got wide and I thought, does your dad wear rainbow suspenders? And he goes, he does. And I'm like, oh my gosh, future father-in-law. That's the best story oh, ever. Meeting. That's amazing. Why? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I love that. Oh, yeah, talk about a small world. I was just, I was just saying, we were starting with small world and that's one of those stories that you're just like, is this like, what sign from what universe was this? Like, really, is this just, just a coincidence? Yeah, you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> so that that's kind of always been our joke and and his dad was so sweet to me so his dad had had a heart transplant and it changed his personality and um caused him to be softer and kinder and sweeter and he had been blessed with a young woman's heart and they say that that can happen that I just gave chilled. me the chills. I know. Oh, yeah. that's so so I met a different father than all of the kids knew. And so I was blessed with this wonderful man that I, he was always so sweet to me, like a big teddy bear. And they didn't grow up in that. And so I was very blessed with that. So he's very special to me. Mm -hmm. um, and he's been gone now 20 24 years. I was pregnant with our last baby when he died. And so um, I love to have that story in, you know, in my memory and share it in his honor. What a, what an interesting, um, well, I'm going to say reality <clears throat> as we're learning more about epigenetics and, you know, neuroscience and energy, quantum energy. It's like it, I'm reading the body keeps score right now. Um, and we do store a lot in, in the cells of, of organs. And um, I don't know, I never really like had thought about, it. I know I've seen and heard of like sci-fi books and, and the movies of like, you know, that happening. But the more that I'm reading about how we do store things in our body and the energetic body, it would make sense that, especially an organ that is like the heart, like, I wonder if there have been any studies done around that or just observations. It's I don't know, but I'd like to find out. And you know, and the obvious is is that he had a second chance at life. Could it have been just that causing him to to turn into this sweeter man? But um, I think there's more to it. Yeah, my husband really feels like there's more to it than just the second chance at life yeah. yeah yeah okay we should introduce you but I feel like there's like more to this conversation um that is really interesting but before we get to it if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, you know I'm pretty obsessed with Whoop. Whoop is a wearable that tracks your heart rate variability and will give you a ton of data around your strain, your recovery, your sleep. What's different about Whoop compared to other wearables out there is that the data it gives you is 
very in-depth and it's really giving you a holistic picture of what your day-to-day -day strain is from the second you get up to the end of the day not really just your workouts or giving generic metrics around steps for example that can be good if you just want to get up and moving but if you're really training for something or you want deeper insights whoop is amazing they even have a journal feature that'll tell you what behaviors you do throughout the day and how they affect your sleep and recovery. But one of my favorite things about Whoop coming from the fitness industry where people are really always just encouraging you to push, 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 is it was really permission giving for me to actually take a recovery day. If I woke up with a low recovery score, deciding, hey, I'm not gonna run today, I'm actually going to rest because that's what my body needs and that aligns with my goal of longevity with my body. If you are interested in getting your first month of Whoop free, as well as a free Whoop strap, we're gonna drop a link in the show notes. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM me at JNL Reese on Instagram. I'm gonna go ahead and welcome Amy Walls, a wife, a mother, and a Mimi grandma. She is a puppy lover, advocate for the underdog. Ooh, me too. We need to talk about that. Christian, hope mentor, cancer registrar, and small business owner as an event coordinator specializing in weddings. She lives in Minnesota with her husband, Nick, and their silly pup, Oliver, and sweet pup, Willow Grace, a therapy pup in training who plays a big role in You're Not Alone. She loves when her three adult children and their significant others and her, son, her grandson comes home for a visit. She has a servant's heart and a desire to save others from the many years of struggles and dysfunction that her family endured. And during their darkest times, they felt as though no one understood what they were going through, God has gifted her with the drive and the vision to change the world's perception of mental health diagnosis, which I'm excited to jump into and is amazing. Amy continues to write her family's story, Six Hearts, Four Paws, and One Ray of Hope, written through the heart, eyes, and voice of their angel pup. Welcome to the podcast. Amy. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this has been an excitement to see on my calendar. Mm. Can I just say, I never really thought about grandma names before, but there are so many variations. I can't even believe it. And when Cebu, my niece, was coming into the world, my mom was like, has wanted to be a grandma her whole life. And so it was very nice that my brother did the honor so that I didn't feel the pressure. Um, but she, I remember her being like, okay, my grandma name is going to be this. And I was like, wow, I didn't know this was like such a big deal. But, and I, so I, when you, what was it? Me, is it Mimi? Mimi. Mimi. I've never heard that one before. So I like, so my mom's is Nana. Nana. Oh, that's funny. So my sister's pregnant, first baby too in the family, like our family. And my, my parents did the same thing. And I was like really confused because we called on my dad's side, my grandparents, Oma and Opa, German for grandma and grandpa. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they like wrote a book or something to give it to my sister. And it was like, love Oma and Opa. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. Like, cause my grandparents have since passed. And I was like, did they like save that? And you've been holding on to it for the first grandchild. And they're like, no, like Oma and Opa are like your mom and dad. That's what they're gonna, I was like, uh, <laughs> I'm like so disconnected from that. I'm so like, your mom. Yes, yeah, so it was my mom and dad who yes, will be, okay. we, 
we don't know what his name is going to be yet, but they call him Baby D because their last name is Donkle. But anyway, so Baby D um, is like, it'll be his Oma Nova, not oh. mine, but I'm all, wait, what? Everyone's I love okay, that. stop. Chanel, I love Yeah, so I like- was not ready. Um, let's see, 51. I was not ready at 48 years old, 47 years old to be called a grandma yet. Um, and so a lot of kids can't say Amy. They say Mamie or Mimi. And I just felt Mimi just fit me better. But it's funny, after Declan arrived, I find myself saying, oh, Declan, come to grandma. It's like I've embraced this whole grandma thing um, now. Just It just took a few, a little time. But Declan, we only knew about Declan, if you don't mind me sharing, uh, for nine weeks. He blessed our family, was supposed to be 10 weeks, but he came a week early. Um, he was supposed to be due on Thanksgiving Day, a wonderful day of thanks. Um, so I'm a true advocate. Um, I have um, a sibling that's adopted. My husband has a sibling that's adopted. And part of my journey um, to where I am now is that my daughter married a gentleman that um, Seth, my son-in-law, when they were four months engaged, he was diagnosed with chronic leukemia. And so after being married a few months, they found out that they were infertile. And so my daughter just blogged it, put it on her Facebook page. And six months later, a college classmate reached out to her and said, I know that you've written about being open to adoption. Are you really? I have someone I would like to introduce you to. And um, it was the most beautiful journey. I can even tell you, um, I never once doubted that this baby was Ashley and Seth's. I knew God had said, you know, we're not going to get your hopes up to get it dashed away. And it is quite a story. And um, I don't want to say too much because I want to respect Declan's biological parents. But my daughter, Ashley, is so funny. She's like, God knew I could not take nine months because she's very impatient. Nine month pregnancy. And he gave it to me in nine weeks. And so they were able to, from start to finish, get um, get everything in order with the um, adoption agency. It was the fastest one they'd ever done. And then he came a week early. And so his story is such a beautiful um, testament to Ashley and Seth's um, belief, you know, God would just take care of them. And, um, and he is the joy of our family. So we've been really blessed with Declan. You've been giving me all the feels this morning. Oh, I, I mean, I'm almost 30, so I still have time. But when I think, like, do I want a child? Do I not? Like, I don't, we'll see what happens in my life or if I even choose to, but adoption, I just think is such an, I don't know if underrated is the right word, but I think it's kind of underrated. Like I know people like, oh, well, to birth the child and whatever. And yes, I'm sure that's like beautiful too, but for whatever reason, like that doesn't sound that appealing to me. And I'm like, I don't know. I think if I ever have a child, I'm like, I might as well just like adopt. And then it takes the timeline out for women too. Like that is something 
that has always been like, oh, we got to rush because what if I can't have a kid? It's just like, no, then you can like be more in choice too. And like really be ready to welcome. Like if I'm not ready by the time I'm whatever age, you know, I'm no longer fertile, then it's like, but I want to be like truly ready. And I think there's so many beautiful options of like being able to build a family and like what family means to you outside of just like biological connections. Yeah, I, I'll add that I'm 38 and when I, so I had cancer when I was 14 and 15. I know. Sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing at it. I look like face. I'm 12. <laughs> really <laughs> not. My mouth was wide open. I know when I, when I um, introduce myself to people, I'm a coach. And so like a lot of times I'll hop on and people will be like, I can tell that they're looking at me and being like, is I'm waiting for the adult to enter the screen, you know, because I do a lot of things virtual. And then I'm like, I'm 38. I know I look like I'm 15. And I act like it's sometimes too. Anyways, um, I'm an old soul with like a level of immaturity that matches a 14 year old at times. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, anyways, when I was um, 14 and 15, I had cancer. And one of the long term impacts of that is potential infertility. And so there were times a little bit younger than you, Janelle, where my parents, like I said, they, they really, they wanted to give me every option in the future that, you know, could be possible. And so they were like very much talking up freezing of my eggs in case, you know, I wanted it and da, 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 da. And I went through the process, the beginning phases of the process of that. Um, it was very difficult for me to do. It felt, um, it was just like a hard thing to wrestle with because I too was like, I'm not against children. I'm not, but I had been assuming for a long time that I probably wouldn't be able to have them. And I kind of just landed on a place. I, there was a beautiful doctor that I, I had worked with um, who froze eggs like that. And he just, I was in, I remember sitting in this big leather chair and he had a big wooden desk and he's telling me like all these things that you have to consider when you freeze your eggs about like what you will do with the eggs that you don't use and what will happen and all this stuff. And I'm just like bawling. And he just, I, it, this is what it felt like to me. He like leaned over the desk, like this big presence on this little thing. And he's like, who are you doing this? Like, are, do you want to be doing this? And I was just like, I don't want and he was just like, I don't think that this is supposed to be what you're doing. He's like, the business side of me is telling me to shut up right now because I can make a lot of money, but I don't think that you're supposed to be doing this. And like, I trust whatever you decide, but, and it was the most, like, it was like something came through him to give me permission to not have to move forward. And I had a conversation with my parents. They were supportive. I didn't know if they would be. Um, and I just said, I want to leave this up to my life path. Like, if I'm meant to have biological children, that will happen and I will love it. If not, and I know that I want to have kids, I will 100% adopt or like, and so I do at 38 being single, I'm like, I could see kids being there. I don't know how that might happen. Like maybe it's, I find a partner who already has kids. Like, I just don't know. And I don't need to. And, and I'm kind of open to it all. And um, I love being an aunt. Um, but it is, it's the the traditional way of looking at fa the family structure, um, I think is it, it, it blocks a lot of um, ability to see what is possible 
And just like you were saying, Janelle, like there's so many different ways that things can come to life and how we can even define family, like, and the, the rigidness that exists can be very isolating um, and, and can create, for me, it's created like sometimes periods and moments where um, I haven't been able to embrace what is already there, what is the essence of family, what is the essence of being able to care for small, a small child, being an aunt, you know, um, and I'm starting to recognize that and play with it so that I don't have to waste so much time um, worrying that my version doesn't look how society has told me it is supposed to look and I can just enjoy it in the version that I have, so. That's amazing. Um, if my dogs bark, they saw a squirrel. So I think they've calmed down now. So I actually had to turn my volume up so I could hear you, Rachel, with all the fiasco going on over here. I think that one of the best things that you said there, and I think people need to do more often, is that we do need to be open to possibilities in everything in our life. I think that people that live with tunnel vision, they're just, they're cutting themselves short by not seeing what is possible. And so by being open to different things, you're, you're giving yourself a win-win, both of you. You know, take that pressure off. Um, I think as women, we always put so much pressure on ourselves and that was part of my demise in the past. And so I think it's great that you guys are both, both you ladies, not guys, are open to that. When we talk about family unit and redefining it for yourself, even like I'm obviously very elated to be an aunt to a, a biological child, but it's like I have friends here and like, you know, that have really become a version of family out in California, being so far away from my family, being in Wisconsin. And some of them have kids. And it's like, no, I like, I feel like I've been an aunt in a lot of ways because you know, I'm there, like I've been there for when they were born and, you know, physically playing and watching them grow up. So sometimes I just like to call that out because it, it can become, as we're talking about rigid and really biological family is special, but also I think choosing your family might sometimes even be more <laughs> special because you are in choice and you're actively saying like, I, I want this and I want this to be a part of my life and you to be a part of my life. And you know, however you bring into the world. I, when Mallory, Sabu's mom was thinking about having kids, my mom, my mom, her and I all went out to lunch or something. And she brought to us, like, I'm thinking about this. We're thinking about this, her and Dave. And, um, and she was like, I just feel like it's an experience that I want to have experienced everything in life. So I want to give myself this chance. And I, was sitting there as she was talking and and I said you know the funny thing is is that we can't experience everything in life like it's everything is a trade-off and and by choosing to have your own children you won't be able to know what it's like to live a life with you know not choosing making that choice and it was an interesting it was a moment of empowerment for me because um I think again it's like of all of the options, it's like sometimes we think that living is this set of circumstances and choices, but it's all living. 
And any choice that you make is a trade-off of choosing what is, you know, more important to you in that moment. And, and it can be empowering to recognize um, that, you know, living can be exactly what you are in right now too, you know? Um, so anyways, I, yeah. And I love, I love that call out Janelle, because I do think that there's at least, I know we have started to have these conversations as like a set of, I don't know, maybe I'm just like attracting people, like-minded people. I, I'm not sure, but I feel like there's a lot of people around me in this age of like young twenties to even in like some mid to upper forties who are single and don't have that family unit and are like almost trying to redefine, but there's not like a model out there of something other than the traditional family structure that we've seen. And none of them are fail. Like none of us are failures or anything. There's just not a lot of representation of like, what does it look like to be, a, you know, a, I don't even know. I don't even want to like put words into it, but like a, an approach, a lifestyle that is still life-giving and fulfilling and legacy leaving and all the things that we tie to the traditional model. Um, I guess, I guess maybe we are a part of creating that modeling for the next generation. And so I'm, I guess, wow, that just hit me. <laughs> I get to be part of like being different and, and showing the next generation what it can look like to be a 38 year old who lives in an RV and is like inspiring people in a different way. Like I'm not, I don't have a family that I, or like kids, but I have, you know, my niece and I have other humans and like, so yeah. Thank you for letting me play that out. <laughs> I think that's so important for us to be open to all those different things. So I, I was of the mindset that I needed a guy in my life from early, like 12. And so I always kept trying to fill that place with people that, looking back, were not worthy of my time. And that was unfortunately what led me down this horrible path of um, mental illness was trying to be what I thought I was supposed to do. I was supposed to fill that void and I didn't feel complete unless there was someone else there completing me. And that caused me to make some really bad decisions on people. And one of them was a two and a half year relationship from the ages of 16 to 18. And um, the emotional abuse that came from that has really changed the trajectory of my life since. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't say I wish it didn't happen, but it's brought me to the place I am now. My true north is now helping other people not, not following those bad thoughts with what, I, what I'm supposed to do, what I have to do, and more of, who are, who am I authentically? Who am I supposed to be? And it took me a very roundabout way to find it. And it took, um, you know, I think I wrote in my email to you, it took me the last five years to finally find myself and not be who I thought everyone else needed me to be. So relatable. Um, Okay, Rachel, ask your question because I have a different one that's going to... Oh, I was just going to say thank you for normalizing not finding yourself until older <laughs> because I too, like, I found out that I have PTSD like a month ago from 
stuff from when I was a teenager. And there are definitely times where I am like, fuck, I'm 38. And like, I should have figured this out sooner. And I can, I know now I'm recognizing that that's like that survival. I've gone into hyper arousal and I need to like, just use that as an indicator to like ground and come back to myself. But it is, um, I just really appreciate when I meet people and hear people who ground me in my new narrative of like, there is no timeline. <laughs> and like, we all have these things and there's actually a lot of similarities to those, those narratives. So anyways, just thank you for normalizing that for me. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was 46 when I finally felt like I have, this is what joy is. I never experienced joy. I can't, you know, and even having my children, I think in a way I was going through the process and numb in a way, but it was finally like, oh, my heart feels not just happy, but joyful. So 46, it could be any age, any age, Rachel. My hand is on my heart. Thank you. I know you're amazing. I um, very much connect with the part of your story where you're talking about at 12, like trying to fill the gap. I um, I was staying with my parents for a while and I pulled up an old journal from, I don't know, I think I was 13, 14 and I was reading it and it was, I literally wrote like, I finally found the one I'm looking for. I think he might be the one. And I'm like, I'm 14 fucking years old. And I'm like, I finally found what I was looking for. <laughs> like, your life hasn't even started, but it's so ingrained in us from such a young age that even at 14 and you said 12, it's like, I had already felt like I was missing something that I was supposed to have in my life. And I was 14 years old. And it like blew my mind reading that in my journal now, you know, at 30. And that's something like, I still am really wrestling with like, what, where do relationships come like play a role in my life? Like, how do I be like, I'm an independent person, but I have this narrative underneath me that like draws me back into feeling like something's missing in my life. Even if logically I'm like, no, I'm actually really good. And I don't need that but that narrative is so damn deep from our childhood and how sad were you for that little girl when so you read sad. it so sad I mean I'm still sad for that little girl that's still here in me that is you know reaching out and like trying to find something outside of herself to be this complete version and I, I want to like jump into your story if you're willing to share but I mean, very similarly, the first person that I dated in high school, and it was like a two, three year long relationship was also incredibly emotionally abusive. And that was like the first person outside of my family that I loved. And my parents were high school sweethearts. So I was like very much in that, like, I found him and this is it. And, you know, this is going to be the thing. And only to, yeah, go through years of someone, you know, treating me like shit, cheating on me calling me a bitch, telling me no one will ever love me, you know, like all the nasty things that at that young age, it's like, oh, this is my first experience at love. So like layer that onto feeling like I need to have this. Yep. And putting that pressure on you that, oh, well, mom and dad were sweethearts, not, you know, nothing against our parents, but we, we live what we know. 
my parents were high school sweethearts too. But I think what I want to tell young girls is don't, don't let society tell you what you have to be and do. You know in your heart what makes you feel good, what makes you happy. Listen to that. Because I knew deep down through all those years, I knew something was not right with me. I never was able to verbalize it. Looking back, I really think that I struggled with dysthymia from a young age. Dysthymia is a low level form of depression. You know, being 10 years old, I just remember having this old soul and feeling like something was just always kind of wrong. I portrayed I was happy, but it was just this low level. But I won't, you know, I always tell in my story though, my big breakdown, well, my first break, let's, let's justify that. My first big breakdown was at 19, um, at the end of that relationship and too embarrassed to ask for help. This was back in 1988. No one talked about depression then. And I didn't want to disappoint my parents to think that they have a child that is doesn't have it all together. My parents were wonderful, loving, couldn't have had better parents, but it was me not wanting to share with them that I, I felt like I was letting them down as a person. And so I just muddled through, I was miserable miserable and then you know life gets back on track and you know it just we go through those phases in our life but it kept being a repeating episode of the same feelings and um so it wasn't until 27 is when I got my first medical help um for depression and it was a massive postpartum depression with my third baby in four years and um, it was a year that just set up for a shitstorm. Literally, here I am pregnant with a third baby. The others, uh, the other two are um, 15 months and three. And oh boy, I am, and I'm a working mom. I worked from home as a medical transcriptionist to take care of my kids. Part-time I worked. And I was doing it all for everybody. I mean, I was everybody's everything. And that year was the year that my father-in-law passed. I was just pregnant. My father-in-law passed from lymphoma, which is common in a transplant world because of the drugs they take for anti-rejection. So um, my husband struggled. I mean, he was, his dad was, was his guy. And so and then if you fast forward four months later, we lose my husband's best friend and our best man to suicide. And I mean, that, that changed our world. Um, my husband was away on business. I had to call him with the news. And um, his story is that he, he's still dealing with that 24 years later. Um, he still has anger about it for 24 years. And so he's on his journey now to working through that. But um, yeah, I couldn't do it all anymore. And so that was my first time of, of getting help, getting medication, finally opening up the seal a little bit 
on all this darkness that I had inside. It was just cracking the surface though. But yeah. I'm, I've moved in with my parents in December. I left a seven year relationship. Um, it was the most amicable leaving, amicable leaving of any relationship I've had. Um, and like heartbreaking and we both kind of needed to, to explore our own paths and see where it was going to take us. And um, so I ended up moving back to California because all my family is here. And so moving in with them made the most sense. Um, and it's been, there's a lot of things that have come up 24 years. It's interesting that you say that because that's how long it's been since a lot of the trauma, like the overt trauma um, or like the specific, if I could like put a stake in the ground of like this traumatic thing and this traumatic thing happened then. Um, and it, it, it took me 24 years to even remember some of it. And that's a wild thing. Um, so I just wanted to, it, again, normalize that it takes the time that it takes for us to be able to connect with the parts of our stories that we are ready, con ready to connect with and it's okay. Um, and then the other piece is like, since getting the PTSD naming, um, I have started to learn a lot more about it because I am interested and I have been bringing information, more information to my parents. And I hadn't realized just how new all this language actually is. Like I assumed that when I had learned about some of the mental health stuff through my late twenties and early thirties, which would have been in the last 10 years, you know, that it was like, this was old stuff that's been known for a long time. And the fact of the matter is, is that it's not like, it is all very, very new. And even as recent as like pre nineties, the way they were treating things or how they were assuming things were happening is inaccurate. And, and so I'm realizing this and then I'm turning to my parents who, you know, in many ways, I love them and some of their behaviors have been not ideal in terms of how to support somebody who's been through trauma or even beyond that. And, and I have had very little patience for the fact that they never had spaces to learn about this. Like, so much is available to us now around terms like gaslighting, emotional abuse, all of that stuff, addiction. And I'm like, I stepped into a world where I have the language to be able to identify what's happening, but for over 60 years, they have not. And so I'm coming into this space being like, you're centering yourself or you're making this about you or you're, that is victim blaming or that. And then it's so much information and they're just trying to be, it's just, it's wild to me to realize that they're, I don't know. There's like a, there's a, there's a compassion, I guess, that I'm starting to recognize in the fact that I want them to be somewhere. And I assumed that everyone had this information and they were just choosing not to engage in it. And that's not true. Like it was not available. And so can I have more compassion to hold the space when they, like thinking about me, 
15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I didn't know this stuff, if somebody would have come to me having sorted through it for 10 years and been like, just stop centering yourself. Like it's fucking so frustrating. So I'm like kind of in this space of like healing and also how do I then hold this space for my parents as a generation who just didn't have access to language and the words and anyways, um, I'm having a lot of compassion right now for them. My mom and I had a fight literally two days ago, which I can see stems from the fact that I do have this language now to be able to like work through my stuff and, and she hasn't. And, you know, what is my role in that and not taking over responsibility for it, but really I have an ability to share what I know with non-attachment and, um, and see, see, see with love, um, the, the, what's there, not my perception of what it means about me. I think it's really been interesting as, um, now as a mother that is healthy, um, to, to be open to see what my children that are, well, they're 23, 25, and 27, how they are teaching me about life. And so for you to be able to educate your parents and to, to fill them in on this missing part that they either were, you know, it's two things. Sometimes it was out there, but we live our, we let ourselves live in a bubble. Or it just wasn't ever apparent to them. It was never an issue of anyone around them. So they had no idea. And I think that the, the thing we have to realize is we have to give everybody grace in those moments. We can't assume that their intentions and what they're saying isn't meant to harm people. It's from being naive, it's from not being educated and it's very much apparent in our society right now and everything that we're dealing with. I mean, we're in Minnesota right now. We're not on the grid for Minnesota nice right now. And I've lived in a white woman suburban bubble that I've let myself live in for too long. I didn't even see what this is doing. And so, you know, when they talk about how, when you realize it, how it changes you, I don't want it to be about me and not knowing. Please educate me on what it's been like for other people living in our society, whether it's a race thing, whether it's um, mental illness, addiction, whatever it is. You know, I want to be known for a person that has empathy and compassion. And I think by you being able to share that with your parents, even though you're going to headbutt at some times and get into an argument, how important that is because you are opening their eyes to something they know nothing about. And they're going to learn from you by what you're going through with your PTSD. My 88-year-old parents are still learning and they are so interested in my role right now and understanding depression and seeing why I'm so passionate about helping others. And it's been really heartwarming to, for them to see this part before they someday pass on. So. Yeah, and even, I don't know. I mean, I'm learning about it deeper, more deeply. Like sometimes I'm like, God, it'd be just so nice if they just like got it. <laughs> and especially 
you know, when I got in the fight with my mom, I was just like, God, like biggest eye roll ever. And, uh, and then I was driving down here. I was actually driving to get my septum pierced and, and I was thinking to myself, like, I want to be able to celebrate this aspect of myself with them. And I don't want this act of getting, like, it is an identity shifter, you know, and I don't want this to be an act, a, a fuck you act. I want this to be an embracing of a part of me that I didn't think could ever exist in the world and, um, and an allowing. And so I, it happened, it happened very fast. And then I went to my car and I just started crying and I was like, I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. And I was like, something in me was like, oh, you just want their validation. And then I was like, no, I want to be able to celebrate. I want to be able to share my experiences of like my own identity shifts and the layers of who I am and the honoring of all of it. Um, I want to be able to share that with them. And, and as I sat in that, I kind of, I thought about my mom she had been sitting on this top of the steps and I, she was clearly upset and I couldn't get out of my own emotions in that moment to be able to meet her there. Um, and so I separated myself from it and in the car, I was able to meet her there energetically. And so I just opened up a audio note and I just said, we're all learning how to grow through this. And there's clearly things that we need to talk about. And I want to hear I want to listen and I want to share and it's going to be awkward <laughs> and that's okay. And, and so I am learning about how to show up through their, in their lack of knowing how to show up too. Like, it's not about it needing to be, but part of me is like, well, if we just all knew, then we could just like work through it so quickly. But actually by her not being able to, it is allowing me to learn how to, to be who I say I want to be. And it's allowing me to be able to learn more about my own processing too. Like, oh, when somebody does that, that is highly true. I get, I just want to scream, fuck you. And I want to punch something. <laughs> so anyways, I just, um, it's all an invitation, all an invitation. Um, it's not about it being perfect. I'm and it's really beautiful when it isn't because now I know I have permission to get it messy and I, and loving somebody else when they're messy allows me to love myself more too. So. Amy, I was going to ask if you'd be willing to share a little bit more about um, your experience with depression. And even you said some of it was more like, whoa, great. I'm not, that's the right word, but there was a term for it. Um, because I think yes. that might pique a lot of people's curiosity in their own experiences with sadness or depression, um, depending. Yeah. So in my, my life, um, what has happened that, you know, always in hindsight, it's easier to see what you've done and what directed you. My desire as um, a person with a huge heart, now that I understand this heart that I have, was always to help others and be the peacemaker. Um, and so that was my role in life always. Always the peacemaker, always making others happy, leaving myself in the very last place. And over the years, what that did is that chipped away at who I was as a person. So then it was to try to fill that void 
with keeping up with the Joneses, okay? So we had these babies, we needed the car, we needed the house. Um, I worked because um, I didn't want to just be just be a stay-at-home mom, which now looking back would have been such a blessing. But I needed more value to my life. I needed to be bringing in some money. And, and what happened, though, is that I learned that I was living a facade. I was living, like we had said, how you were... I was living that American dream where we work way too hard. We're too hard on ourselves. We don't take enough downtime. So I was going a mile a minute, a mile a minute. And um, so, you know, that first baby, that third baby, when I had the depression, it caused me to realize, okay, I'm putting too much pressure on myself. Got on some medication, started to feel better. Um, we built that house close to my parents because I knew someday I would take care of them. Well, then we have this beautiful house. So now we need the beautiful car. And I was the volunteer at church. I was the volunteer at the kids' school. I was the yes girl. I felt like I had to say yes to everybody. And my husband would see the worst of me because he'd be the one that got to see me fall apart from doing too much. So unfortunately, our marriage was not good. We've been married for 30 years. And um, my mental illness really caused a lot of problems. But then, you know, it's not just my fault. I mean, there's more to it. But so what happened is um, in trying to always fill that void. So I went on those meds. I would say I was on for a year and a half and decided, I'm good, I'm good, went off. And I would usually go about another year and a half where all of a sudden I'd fall apart again. And so then I went back on meds again. That time I decided to stay on a little longer um, and I was great again. You know, that's what happens. Um, people think that they're great because it's them. Well, no, it's that chemical imbalance that's being satisfied. So, um, then what happened is um, I really decided, um, then it was like really decided it was time to hit rock bottom, I guess. And what happened as a really good weight loss journey with my husband, we had gone on one too many vacations and couldn't fit in our jeans anymore. Um, we decided to do Weight Watchers. It's something we're going to do together. And boy, did we hit that. I'm a go-getter. So started off very healthy. Well, along that way, I mean, we each hit our goal. He lost 50. I lost maybe 18, which is all I needed. Somewhere along the, lake, along the lines, I started to lose myself and being there for everyone else. And I was on one drug. I was already still on one medication. But that weight loss journey, as I started to feel like my life was spinning out of control, turned into anorexia. So in my 30s, um, the way I say it is that depression and anxiety led me to anorexia. And that is typically, I think, how it happens. So because I had nothing in my life I felt I could control, even though my husband would say I was controlling everything, I could control what I put into my body and how often I exercised. And so 
oh no, I'm healthy. What do you mean there's a problem? So I had many people, you know, say, make comments as I kept getting smaller. And then it was the attention of, oh, you're so little. Look at you. You know, so then it brings a whole different attention. And um, finally, um, one of the, the, on a Monday, the kids left for school. My husband went to work. And I was so stressed out to sit to my desk at home that I started thinking, okay, I can eat and then I'm going to exercise and then I'm going to eat lunch and then I'm going to exercise. And my mind, that's this new pattern started and it scared me. Um, so I did that for about a week and then it was, nobody needs me here. I started putting a plan into play to run away. Nobody needs me. I just need to get away from my life. But luckily, I had enough sense and knowledge, you know, logic that I said, oh, but Amy, you get away and you try to come back. How are you going to explain this? Nobody knows you're depressed. Nobody knows you have a problem because you've lived this facade. You know, people at church would never have known. People at school, no. My parents. I kept it. And so um, luckily that morning that those mind, my mind was spinning on getting a plan in place. My brother out of the blue called and it stopped that thinking, talked to me long enough, didn't talk about it, but it stopped me from going any further. And I got off the phone and it was time. I admitted, okay, I have a problem. I, and my husband wasn't even aware of the anorexia. That's how good I was at hiding it. And so that was um, the end of my, the end to my new beginning. And um, the key, the key for people that live with depression and anxiety is you're not weak. I heard, I heard a TED talk this morning and it made so much sense. And what he said is that depression and, and anxiety is actually a signal. It's a signal that, that you're not taking care. There's something that's not being met in your life. And if only we would think of it as it's just a signal. It's my warning sign. But so many people, they take it internally and think they're weak. Something is wrong with them that they, they just can't do it. So they keep pushing it, all their problems away and they never get the therapy they need. Um, I was the queen of passive aggressiveness. The queen. I never wanted to confront it because I just wanted to make everyone happy. So I'm just going to push it away. And so my key was four years of weekly therapy to figure out why this was happening. And I think women, like I said earlier, we put way too much pressure on ourselves. We never give ourselves grace. And that is my mission is that we give ourselves grace knowing we are not superwoman. We are not meant to be perfect. My perfectionism ended me with anorexia. And, um, People need to realize this happens to so many of our friends and they don't even realize that they're struggling alone. And so Rachel, one thing that I wanted to comment on with you, with your mom and dad, 
is if you don't feel like they are being compassionate in understanding where you are, you need to find some support that can tell you you're doing the right thing. Being empathetic. And so that is my life's mission now is to be that mentor, that person that makes you feel like you're not all alone in the world. You do feel like it. You feel like you're an island to yourself. Um, and that is my goal is I want to be the friend that I didn't have that struggled with depression that could tell me you're not crazy, Amy. You're just overwhelmed. And so we need people like that in our life. And so this mission has um, been in the works. It's been um, it was just two, two years ago that I woke up one morning and God said, it's time, Aim. Now's the time. You're sharing your story. I told you you were going to share it. And I told you I would tell you when. And um, I've never been happier and more joyful and free. And when you can talk about it. So... Um, I just want anyone that is feeling stuck. There are people out there that want to help you, and that's me. And I'm going to create a network of people, moms to moms, uh, wife, women to women, siblings to siblings. You know, like my children, they could help other kids whose parents are mentally ill. They've lived it. They get it. Um, my daughter, her husband. She could share with another woman whose husband is struggling. She's lived it. She understands it. And so that is my mission until, the, until I'm old and way less than five feet tall, I'm sure, <laughs> is, is to, to create this network of um, hope and people that will bring empathy and make other people feel like they're not, they're not losing it. They just need some direction. Thank you. Like, just thank you. I, um, yeah, I, we talk a lot on the podcast about community. Um, there's so much on self-help, but the importance of community help. And, um, it's one of the big things that I, in the last four months have been, really working on like, what does my support system look like? Who are those people? And, and what are the different ways that different people can be different levels of support in my life? And, um, and I know that my parents are a level of support, but I, I have put a lot on them to be more than what they're actually capable of being for me. And I'm starting to see that. Um, and instead of making them wrong for it, <laughs> you know, I am in the process of recognizing like, because we all want our parents to be able to like accept and be like, you know, the ones that can do it all for us and with us and, um, and to be able to relieve the pressure, but relieve the pressure valve of them having to have it all figured out for me to feel okay with myself. And then to recognize like, that's actually a gift for the other people in my life who can do what they can and to let them share their gifts, supportive gifts with me. And so 
I have definitely, especially in the last month, I have found like a group of people who I've been able to have conversations with to say, hey, I'm struggling with this and this is an aspect of it. And and it's been cool to have the dialogues with people to say, to see where they are like, I feel really good supporting you here, but I feel nervous about this aspect. And it's like, okay, cool. That's, that's awesome. I can totally like respect that. And thank you for being here for me in this area, because I know that I have, you know, other people that can support me in these other facets. Um, and I've never done that before. So I appreciate you um, reinforcing that today because it's, it's validating for sure. Your story, I, I appreciate you just sharing it because I believe it's very relatable for a lot of people. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can listen to this and say, like see themselves in your story and your experiences and know that, you know, it's obviously so easy for us to just think like everyone is okay around us and we're the only person that is experiencing this and the more transparent we can be, um, you know, I really think it helps open up worlds and a level of acceptance that we're hopefully moving towards as a community, as a society. Um, and also I just wanted to say like your, your passion and your sincerity behind you and your story is just, I mean, it's really beautiful and just like warms my heart. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, um, there is a bit of a struggle I have that I don't want my story and the way I share it, you know, God is such a huge part of it, but I don't want non-believers to be turned off by my God talk. And so, and my feeling is the people that are non-believers, depression is harder on them because they don't have hope. And so I am learning to, to find a way to balance that, to not offend anyone. Just because I believe doesn't mean you believe, and I'm totally fine with that, but I want you to hear my message. And, you know, do we, it's just finding how, that delivery. And so, um, you know, there is one other piece that I would like to share with you if we have time. Um, a year into my therapy, where I am now coming to terms with people knowing this about me because I can no longer cut, I can no longer cover it up. I can't go to the grocery store because I don't want anyone to look at me and ask me how I am because I'm going to lie. And I don't lie, I'm just gonna cry. So um, what happened though, unfortunately was that um, through a couple different circumstances, our youngest, our middle son was 11 and he had some things going on in his life that we weren't aware of. And I knew that there was a problem because he had started getting um, more panicked. So he'd be high, he'd be low. Um, we had mold in our house that we had moved away from our home. And so we were living away from our home and he started to get quite erratic. And I thought, what is going on here? I'm going to weekly therapy. I'm on a leave of absence from my job. We're not in our house. I'm trying to keep these three kids who are ill because of the mold and I'm ill because of the mold. And he started acting out. And so um, 
I decided to make a therapy appointment for him. We needed some help. And in that therapy session, it was a child I didn't recognize. I did not know who this boy was that was saying these things. And the fear, so I had thought I had hit my rock bottom. I was just on the cusp of the real rock bottom that was coming. And so um, he was angry when we got home. I am never doing that again. Um, and went in his room and attempted to take his life in front of his little brother. And that was when the rock bottom became really apparent that now I am mama bear trying to protect this child of mine that I don't recognize anymore. That one minute he would be the sweet little boy that mama, I just want love. And the next minute he would be this angry person I didn't recognize. And so part of you're not alone and the reason that this organization came about was because we spent 18 hours in the ER awaiting a bed for him. There were no beds in Minnesota for a psychiatric patient at that time. Um, and I saw different levels of him come out during that time when fear and anxiety would take over. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is wrong? Found out that he had been um, being sexually bullied in school. And the anger that that created in that ER room was more than I could handle. But finally finding a bed for him, we had to travel two and a half hours to Fargo, Minnesota, or Fargo, North Dakota. And by the time we got there, it was 10 p.m. at night. And I found out I was very naive that he was going to be in a locked unit and I was not going to be able to stay with him like I did in the ER. And um, I had to fill out forms an inch thick about my child. And at this time, it's 11 o'clock. They've taken him away from us to do his intake. And my husband and I are all alone, all these miles away, filling out these intake forms of how old was he? Was he a premature labor? Did you have trouble birthing him? Um, yes. Um, how old was he when he crawled, when he walked, when he ate, when he talked? And I'm in this crisis and I need to fill out all this information for my son. And by the time we left that night, he was so angry that we were leaving him. That was the rock bottom. I mean, I, all I saw was this mountain. How are we going to get him back? And so he, um, that's one of the things I'm doing right now that Alina, my employer, is allowing me to create is this crisis peer mentor. I don't want any other parent or loved one to have to go through what we did all alone, trying to keep our mind on these stupid forms and have no one there to support us. So I approached them and said, would you allow me to create a program where people like myself that have lived it, other parents that have lived it, other spouses that have lived it, that could be on call. And when you have someone come in in crisis, can I come and will you ask them if they could just have a, a, a friend, a mentor, someone to sit with them and do the writing for them, help them with the decision, you know, just to be the liaison between them 
and the medical community. And that is what really, when my vision started, that was the one thing that said, that's what I'm, I'm meant to do. And they are allowing me to do this. Then COVID happened. And so um, my drive to be there for people in their darkest times and to be a beacon of hope for them is what I believe I was created to do in my life. And so, um, so I could come to you from the aspect of a woman that's lived with severe depression, anxiety, and I can come to you as a mama that understands because you can't talk to anybody about your child if they don't understand mental illness. They will look at you like, you guys are crazy. And there's just such, um, no one needs that. There's so much shame already around it. You just need people to love and support you. And so our, Alex's journey has been an amazing journey. It's been 14 years. It's hard to see. Um, this is his graduation picture. He, um, and so he, um, in his quiet way, so he's not as outspoken as his mama, in his quiet way, it's taken him, you know, about 12 years. No, I take that back. 10 years for him to really come to terms with his life. Um, we finally, after many years of going on and off medication on his own as a teen, discovered and uh, um, honed in on the fact that he really has ADD really bad and we've never addressed it. Just keeping him alive was more of our concern. Discovering that before his senior year in high school changed his world. He became so engaged in school and his teachers that he decided that he wanted to have that impact on youth and he is a high school math teacher because of it. And he's on his third year now. And he has helped so many students by sharing his story just in a small way, just, you know, dealing with anxiety, depression, ADD. His first year was in a school that was a really tough school, a lot of violence. Um, and that year alone, I think he helped six kids get help. And he was living with us at the time, moved home. Um, our puppy, our puppy, Lily was in her last year of life. And that puppy is the one that saved our family. He came home to live at home that year so that he could have that last year with her. And we got to see, it was like the 360 of this young little boy, now a man, and he was helping other people. And, um, it made all that sadness and that tough years of keeping him alive and, and trying to keep him happy. Like I felt like that was my drive. That was my mission. It made it all worth it. And now he is blessing his kids and his, um, he coaches with his story in a quieter way. And he has given me permission to share his story because that's really important that I have his permission because he is kind of a private guy. Um, but um, it's a whole different story when it's your child that's sick. So Rachel, your mama is, and dad, we just want our children to be happy. 
and we want to we want to make sure that nothing stands in their way and it's a really hard role to play as a parent and so just giving her grace and knowing what you just said before that's so key that you understand she just wants you well so thank you yeah i appreciate i just there's so much in that there's so much in that and um yeah, for my own self, it's, I think we're in the middle of, of it. And I am not your son, but as, in my own version of that, it's, I am a very high functioning person and that can become at the expense of honoring what is truly belief beneath the surface. And, um, in being there for my parents, what I, what has come out of my mouth a lot of times is I know that this is also hard for you and you are allowed to get whatever support you need. It just can't be me. I can't be the one to be, to tell you that this is okay. I have to be here for me right now and I have to do what is right for me. And it doesn't mean my experience is more important than yours, but it, it has to be my priority. And so you have to make however you're going to experience and handle what I'm bringing to the table, because I know that it's a lot and I know that it's hard to hear and I can imagine what that would be like. Um, you get to decide what you want to do with that, but I can't be the one to do. And so that is the place um, that, that, it's easy for me to slip into like, oh my gosh, they're uncomfortable. I, I can fix this by, I shouldn't have said anything. I can fix this by, by making it better, by being, being the person that I know will make them be able to breathe right now. And to sit in the space of like really knowing that that actually is just a short-term fix and that that just perpetuates the, the, the trauma for everyone is, it is a lot. And, um, I'm grateful that I'm at a place right now to know that I'm allowed to let it be uncomfortable and to know that that is a loving act when I am being true to myself, but it is, it's a lot to navigate. So um, just knowing that there are other families out there that are, I don't know, I can exhale a little bit um, because it is very easy to sit there and be like, I am really making this very, very fucking hard for everybody. But the fact of the matter is, is that like my story happened. It is what it is. It's not making anything, anything. It is what it is. And if it's not brought to the table, somebody is having to bear the burden of that. And usually it ends up being me. And by putting it out there, we can kind of all figure out what our parts are or aren't. And it's, it's a, it's a way lighter step in, in the right direction. Not that it doesn't come with all of the um, narratives and shame that you do have to work through and, and everything. So there's a lot there and, and I just appreciate you. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I think it's really important that you said you can't be that person for them. That would be robbing you of what you need right now. And that would take you backwards instead of forward. And it also would create that codependent relationship that your parents would have on you. Um, I was a codependent personality and I never knew it. I mean, 
our lives, we're, we're meant to unravel these layers of ourselves and learn from them. And the queen of passive aggressive is no longer. I mean, I have learned there is freedom and, in a, you know, addressing the issue when it happens because boy, can I hold a grudge until I blow and who wants to deal with that? My poor husband dealt with that for years, my kids. And so we, you know, part of my mission is to, so people don't live with the chains that are holding them down. You know, we all have our own chains and in each person we have to say, well, what are my chains? My need for acceptance, my need for the perfect body, the perfect face, the perfect daughter. You know, I, I, I truly call myself a recovering perfectionist. And you know what got me over that? A little black lab puppy that I couldn't clean my house anymore from. And literally that changed our family. We had never had a dog. The kids had never had a dog. And um, this little girl, I kept, I mean, I can't even explain to you. Um, we would visit them every day as puppies. Every day they allowed us to come and see the puppies. We saw them when they were six hours old and, the, and I can always I'll forever remember the light in Alex's eyes. It was three months after his hospitalization. They took off on their bikes. They went to see these newborn puppies and he came back and I saw a little glimmer of a twinkle in his eye again. And I thought, there it is. I see it, it's there. And I thought we were getting the dog for him. Lily was for me and I didn't realize it. She got me over so many things. Um, and it gave our, our dysfunctional family something to focus on other than ourselves. So I just wanted to add that in. I know we're running out of time, but dogs, pets, there's a reason we have them in our world. And I, my mission, my logo is a puppy face. It is because of a dog that I'm here today to tell you that you can learn new tricks. Don't let, let them tell you a dog can't learn, you know, an old dog can't learn new tricks. We can, we can totally do it. So that puppy, she has been gone two years now and um, she changed all of us. Um, so much so that um, the newest puppy, Willow Grace, she, someone heard about my mission and they gifted me her. She's a golden a golden retriever. She came home Christmas of 2019. She was four months old. And she's not a normal puppy. She is meant to be a therapy dog. She has the, she just wants to love you. Never had a golden retriever, but I heard that's kind of their, their mojo. But um, so she is meant to be my sidekick. So we've been on the journey to be a therapy dog. And so I'm creating a program at Alina, not only the ER, the ER peer program, but a program where we have a, um, a handler with a therapy dog or with a dog, therapy dog. But that handler has to either have had mental illness or has had a close family member. And we're gonna go into the transitional unit where um, people that have been released from inpatient come back in every day for three weeks. 
to kind of re-implement their life. And we want to be there. And we want them to know of our love of an understanding of people with mental illness. Because I think not knowing that there's no judgment takes that wall down. So we want to be there for them just, just to have the, just some puppy, you know, some tail wags and some puppy love. But you'd be amazed at the conversations that can start. And so um, Willow is on that journey to be our little, our little mascot. And when, I, when I'm able to speak publicly, again, thank you, COVID, she will be my sidekick as long as she's welcomed in the venue. Uh, she'll be there to support me, obviously, to get through my talk, but then to be there just to bring love to everybody. So I have huge dreams of her and I helping, um, helping people. She um, unfortunately has a disability that we just learned about in August, and um, we don't know if that's going to shorten her life with us. Um, so if you look for us on Instagram or Facebook, our name is You're Not Alone, Willow's Wagon, like wagon tail. But the reason that's wagon is because eventually she will likely be a therapy dog in a wagon. Um, she has um, dys dysplasia in all four limbs. And so we've been doing physical therapy with her. We have been on quite a journey. And so my dream then is eventually not to just do mental illness help, but we wanna go into the hospitals with children that are in a wheelchair, that have struggles that are visible. So what I thought was just going to be an invisible diseases mission now is a, also a physical diseases mission. So um, she needs to hang around for at least 10 years. I have a lot on, you know, that I want with her for 10 years. So, and um, yeah. She brings us such joy and love, it's unreal. And then we have another dog that my husband had to get. So Oliver is the old boy in our family. Um, he's almost nine and he's my husband's mini-me. Um, both of the girl dogs in the family have been my mini-me's. I think God has a special, he knows who's supposed to come into our lives when they do. So um, I know my story has many layers, but um, that's our mission. We just want to be there. So, Rachel, in your situation, I would love to be someone you could lean on. Thank you. I would love to be someone your parents could talk to if they needed to. That is my mission. Yeah. And that's my love. I am definitely going to offer up your name to my mom. It feels like there could be definitely some resonance there. Um, and, and let her, you know, I trust her to know what's best for herself. Um, and I do want to acknowledge you for recognizing what I have felt as a gap in our current Western medical field, which is we get you to the point where you're like, your tests, your tests look good. So see ya, cause we got a whole line of people at the door. And so I really appreciate you being within that system and um, recognizing the, the after that, after you get the, the, the clean tests that there's still this whole bunch of shit that you're, you carry with you and you're doing a beautiful job of um, meeting that, meeting that space and meeting people in that space. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you thank are. you for sharing your story, your family's story. It's you, we are lucky to have you in this, this space and the world in general.
we do, um, we close with one final question. And that is, how do you live your true north in one word? The word hope came to me in my depression and it was everywhere I looked. So much so that that ray of hope on my book title is actually Lily Ray of Hope was her name. So I think being hope for others is my true north. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's been amazing to meet you, Amy. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of the True North Collective podcast. For more from Rachel and I, check us out on the gram at the True North Collective underscore. And make sure you're signed up for our mailing list. You can do that at thetruenorthcollective.org to stay up to date on all of our resources, tools, and upcoming events. We appreciate you being here with us. We'll see you next time.